All right. Well, my name is Micah Redding, and I'm here with Dr. Thomas J. Ord, who's a theologian, philosopher, scholar, and the author or editor of nearly 20 books, including the forthcoming book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. Uh, Dr. Ord, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks so much. I'm looking forward to talking with you. So um, for people who haven't heard of it or are not familiar with um, the concept, can you kind of explain, you know, what is open theism? Because this is a big idea that I think you've talked a lot about. Sure. Uh, People describe it in a variety of ways, and there are a lot of uh, aspects to it that uh, open theists embrace. But probably the defining feature of open theism is this view that God is part of time, or temporal, or timeful, as I like to say it. And because of that, God does not know right now everything that is going to happen in the future. To use a technical language, God does not have meticulous foreknowledge. God can predict with uncanny accuracy sometimes what's going to happen. God can know what God plans to do himself, but uh, the future is not known or foreknown exhaustively by God because creatures are free and those events have not yet happened. Hmm. So this sounds um, different than some other theologies <laughs> that a lot of us have heard. And sure. so, um, you know, I think that maybe some people would hear that and they would say, well, that doesn't sound kind of like the traditional um theology that that I've been told. So what what would be your reaction to that? Yeah, I think they're right to feel that. It will sound a little bit strange to some people. Um, there are basically two major traditions on this particular subject uh, within Christianity, or at least within Protestantism. One, uh, one tradition says that God foreordains and foreknows everything that will occur. And this is usually associated with John Calvin and the Calvinist tradition, the predestination in the sense that God predestines everything that's going to happen. And and if God predestines everything, it makes sense that God foreknows everything that's going to happen. But then there's the tradition usually associated with James uh, Arminius or Jacob Arminius, which says that God does foreknow the future, but God doesn't foreordain it. So in other words, God somehow knows what's going to happen in the future without controlling and predestining every last little thing. And the openness folks offer a third alternative. They say, you know, it it doesn't make too much sense to say that God can somehow foreknow absolutely everything that's ever going to happen uh, because we have free will. And if God could foreknow everything in the future, that would mean that in some way the future is complete. It's fixed. It's settled. And if the future is complete, fixed, and settled, it's hard to imagine how we could have any sort of freedom to choose amongst options. After all, the future is already settled and complete. And uh, so some folks have kind of thought that through and said to themselves, yeah, maybe there's, maybe we ought to get rid of the classical notion of foreknowledge and say that God is still omniscient, God knows everything, but there's some things God doesn't yet know because they're not yet knowable. Hmm. So what would be some what would be some of the main reasons why um someone would lean towards 
this view or the things that would have kind of driven people to starting to explore this option out of the three that you've mentioned? Yeah, great question. Actually, in my uh, forthcoming book that you mentioned, The Uncontrolling Love of God, I take an entire chapter and talk about what I call four paths to open and relational theology. The first path is a biblical path. Uh, A lot of people don't realize that the Bible oftentimes describes God as not knowing the future. For instance, um, in the story of Abraham and Isaac, when Abraham takes Isaac to the top of the mountain, and you probably know just before he puts the knife in, the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to him and stops him. Mm. And, And in the text it says, now I know that you are faithful, giving the impression that God wasn't quite sure before it happened whether or not Abraham would go through with it, and then God saw that Abraham was going to go through it, and, through with it, and God learned some information. Hmm. Or take the end of the story of Jonah. Uh, you know, Jonah gets finally reconciled with God's plan for him to go to Nineveh, and he comes to the city of Nineveh, and God tells him to say, in 40 days, this place is going to be ruined. It's going to be destroyed. And Jonah 3 says that the king of Nineveh tells his people, look, maybe if we repent, maybe if we are sorrowful, we put on sackcloth and ashes, God will change his mind. At the end of the chapter, it says God changes his mind and does not bring upon the destruction that God earlier told uh, Jonah that he was going to do. Mm-hmm. Or take one of my favorite ones, the, the story of King Hezekiah. Uh, Isaiah comes to him, to Hezekiah, w- uh, with a word from the Lord and says, Hezekiah, get your house in order because you are going to die. In fact, it emphasizes it, says you are surely going to die. Well, Hezekiah then prays and says, Lord, give me more uh, life. And God has a change of mind and decides to extend his life by 15 years. So if God had the future already figured out and knew what was going to happen, God would be, in effect, lying to tell Isaiah to go and talk to Hezekiah and say, you're going to die right now. But what it seems to suggest in these examples, and I could give you many others, that what we do really does make a difference to what God does, and God isn't 100% certain exactly how things are going to work out until we decide freely what we choose to do. So should I go through the other three or do you want to ask a follow-up question yeah, to that? Well, let me, that, that just kind of, you know, made me think about, um, the, uh, the story of, of Abraham and Moses, both of whom kind of get in this negotiation with God. Yeah. Right? Yes. And I think God tells Moses, I'm going to destroy this people. And Moses says, well, hold on a second. Let's, exactly. <laughs> let's, let's think this through. Yes. And there's, it's, it's almost as if, um, these characters, you know, one of the one of the the things about these characters that's being um, almost held up as exemplary is that they're they're willing to um, enter into this uh, dialogue with God that that you know should be terrifying, right? But they're yeah, they're yeah. willing to engage God in that kind of relationality. Um, so that's kind of what it what it brings to mind for me. Does that fit well, up with what you're thinking? It sure does. And and one of the characteristics of open theology, and in fact, I called it earlier open and relational theology, mm-hmm. is that open theists think that what we do actually makes a difference to God, that there's a giving and receiving on God's part. 
Most Christians don't realize it because they don't study formal academic theology, but the great theologies of people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin, they don't have a God who is affected by us. God is mm-hmm. impassable, to use the technical theological language, which means that God is not relational in the sense of receiving from us. But open uh, and relational theologians say, no, we're in a real dialogue, real interaction. We make a real difference to God and how God is going to react in the world. And so, therefore, God, out of love, receives whatever we do and then responds to us. And there's this ongoing giving and receiving, giving and responding kind of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I want to give you the opportunity to talk about some of the other um the other three points that you're, you're mentioning, but, um, you know, I have to ask here, so how does this affect, um, how Christians think about eschatology? Yeah. Great question. Um, open theists don't have one particular view of eschatology. They've typically got a a number of different ways. Um, an open theist can believe that God has already decided the exact day and time that God's going to, you know, bring things to a fulfillment, and God knows that now. Or an open theist can say, can believe that God is waiting for the right time, and God's even now not sure, but is waiting for a particular time, maybe, you know, until uh, when all creation is redeemed or repents or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's there's some variable ways. There's no one set way that an open theist thinks about eschatology. Okay. So, um, yeah, and that brings to mind uh, Jesus' <laughs> Jesus' statement about the uh, the Son of Man uh, does not know the day or the hour. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So, okay, so yeah, let's. Um, what are the, some of the other things that drive people's uh, people towards this kind of a viewpoint? Sure. So the second path that I mentioned in the book is kind of the path of the theological traditions. There are a number of theological traditions that uh, emphasize free will, for instance, uh, the Stone-Campbell movement, the Wesleyan movement, many of the Anabaptist movement, the Adventist movement. There's, there's several there. And in those kinds of traditions, many theologians, not all, um, probably not even most, but many have begun to think about the implications for free will and then because of their thinking through the implications of free will, have ended up becoming open theists, because that just seems to make the most sense to them. And then there's a realm of Christian philosophers who have come to open and relational theology through thinking through the philosophical dimensions of, uh, you know, libertarian freedom and time and all kinds of, most of these are analytic philosophers. Mm -hmm. And then the third, or I guess it's the fourth path, is the path of science. Um, Many scientists uh, look at the world, and because of their scientific presuppositions, if they're believers in God, uh, they come to think that the open way of thinking makes the most sense. Uh, One of the most uh, recognized names in this particular realm would be John Polkinghorne, Mm -hmm. who is a a Cambridge physicist and also an ordained minister. But there are are several other... uh, major scientists. So through scripture, through the theological traditions, through philosophy, and through science, uh, people have taken or come to open theology. Okay. So, you know, what, what this, um, what this seems to suggest to me is a kind of reorientation of how we think about ourselves and our role, um, that we play. And I think, um, 
you know, kind of the open theism suggests an open future. I think one of your books is called God in an Open Universe. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's there's the sense that, um, uh, you know, the the future is still to be determined in that kind of a in that kind of a um, worldview. What role do we play? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think in some ways open theology is going to sound a little bit strange to people because they've always thought God knew the future, everything about the future before it happens. But in another way, it sounds really obvious. And let me give you a reason, a a particular example. Think about petitionary prayer. Think about people, you and me, people in our church, when we have, let's say, some sickness or disease or something like that, and we pray and ask God to heal us. We are presupposing an open future. We are presupposing that in some way, shape, or form, our prayers might have some kind of an effect upon God. Not that God is manipulated by our prayers, you know, and strong-armed or, or something, but when we pray and ask God to do something, we're presupposing that the future's not yet settled. It's not yet fixed. It's not determined or complete. And so petitionary prayer really only makes sense if the future is open. Otherwise, why pray at all? At least why pray asking God to do something? You might pray and confess, but why pray and, and ask God to change something or do something new or heal if, in fact, the future is settled? Mm-hmm. And that is actually, you know, a, a one small illustration. I think the larger issue is that open theology gives us the sense that what we do really matters. If God knows the future, then it sounds again like the future is complete. And it doesn't really matter what we do because God knows what's going to happen. But if, in fact, the future is open and our choices make a difference not only in our lives, but also to God, then that's a kind of responsibility that at least some people find exhilarating. It makes sense in the way they live their lives. And so they're understandably attracted to open and relational thinking. Yeah, I think that's that's a tough thing. You know, there's, um, there's uh, a whole kind of stream of Christian thought, which is, um, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life and, um, that, you know, our role is to try to figure out what that plan is essentially. And, um, and then there's this other stream of, of thought, which is, you know, we, we have this responsibility to, um, to work, to create a better world, to, um, do good things with our lives, to, to, um, you know, choose which paths we will take. And, um, you know, and I think, uh, it's maybe, I don't know if it's personality differences or whatever that draws people to different parts of, uh, to, you know, down one of those two paths. Um, because I know, I know a lot of people find a lot of, of kind of consolation and feeling like there's a plan out there that they're, simply they've simply got to discover um, yeah i totally agree yeah and i i don't know that i've ever really understood that in in the sense of you know like um if god has a secret plan do i get do i get to screw that up or 
Um, <laughs> you know, is, <laughs> is, is this all part of it? Or, you know, I, I've never been able to quite figure out how all that works. Why do I have to figure it out if, if it's already set in motion? But um, how would you, how would you think about that? You know, if, if someone um, suddenly says, well, no, no, you've got the responsibility to, um, to choose a path here. Um, does that take away some uh, sense of consolation? And if so, then what do we get back <laughs> in return? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think when we talk about God's plan for our life, an open theist can agree that God has a plan so long as that plan is understood in a, as a general framework and not all the particular details already figured out and predetermined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think you can have some consolation that uh, there is this overarching, overriding framework that God is using and drawing creation and God's love to uh, something better, the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, you're, I have this. I've had the same sort of response from my students when I talk about this. When I when I tell them that you know that. Perhaps God doesn't know the future yet because the future is still open. It's not settled. And perhaps what you do really does make a difference to what happens in the future and even what God does. Um, some of my students are challenged. They're like, they sort of, they, their shoulders go back and they, they feel like, yeah, I can make a difference. My life counts. Mm-hmm. And then there are other students who kind of slump and they sort of, in, they give the body language that suggests that, Oh, you mean what I do makes a difference? Well, mm. bummer. You know, like mm. <laughs> I now mm-hmm. have to shoulder some responsibility, and and that's kind of scary. Maybe that's uh, more responsibility than I wanted because I just figured it was all going to work out okay. Yeah. Or, um, but most people I know, once they hear this, most people I know who've been around the block a few times knows know that the, there's evil in the world, that there's pain and suffering. And for them, it makes a lot more sense to believe that God didn't foreknow all that was going to happen. And uh, that, that pain and suffering is at least partly the result of uh, poor creaturely actions and choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind, of, that kind of touches on the, the million-dollar theological question, Right. All right. The, the problem of evil, right? Um, oh, hold it. Now, if you say yeah. it's a million dollar question, if I answer it, are you going to give me that million? <laughs> if you if you answer this, I think somebody does. You deserve a million dollars. Hey, <laughs> this is exactly what my book's about. So I give an answer. So I'm looking. I'll be looking for the check in the mail, Michael. All right. All right. Because because <laughs> you know, um, I mean, because this is the 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 problem of evil is the. Um, the huge, the, like the biggest um, issue in in Christian thinking, in at least yeah. in my mind, it's been it's plagued people for for generations, and um, you know, and I think um, both in its kind of more philosophical form and mm-hmm. in its experiential form, it's it's the thing that drives people um, to really. Uh, question and potentially, you know, throw out the religion because this is exactly. where, where it just kind of, you know, um, our theological language and feelings and all of this kind of stuff come, you know, cl- into this clash with um, mm-hmm. the way the world is, right? So, <laughs> um, how do you? So, how does this help illuminate that um, that problem? 
All right, so let me begin by saying that what I'm going to tell you as my response, actually, I'm going to be so bold as to say my solution to the <laughs> problem of evil is my own and not all open theologians would affirm it. In fact, okay. I this is a brand new idea. It's in this book. It's at the very heart of it. Um, and so when I, when I talk about the problem of evil, just understand that not op- all open uh, relational theologians uh, agree with what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. So my view is what I call essential kenosis. You know that uh, passage in Philippians where it's called the kenosis passage where it talks about um, God self-giving, uh, self-limiting, some would say, mm-hmm. uh, empowering others, taking the form of a servant, uh, giving his life, etc. Yeah. Um, Many theologians today will talk about God deciding to become self-limited to, out of love, to give freedom and agency to the world. And usually they make the argument that this self-limitation was a voluntary choice on God's part. It was something God just decided to do for, for whatever reason, because God is loving, because God, God's glory, God's plan, something or other. The problem with this voluntary self-limitation is that, in theory, if not also in actuality, God could always become unself-limited in any particular moment to prevent some genuine evil occurrence, prevent a rape or a genocide or holocaust or whatever. And uh, so the voluntary self-limitation response to evil doesn't go far enough to sort of getting God off the hook for failing to prevent genuine evil. So I make the bold move by saying that this self-limitation is involuntary. It's essential. And the way I talk about it is to say that God's nature of love, which is always self-giving, others-empowering, is logically prior to God's sovereign choice in God's nature. Now, there's a whole bunch of technical mm-hmm. theology there. But basically it's saying what God can do is determined, shaped, or controlled by God's love. And because God's love always gives freedom, agency, self-organization, the kinds of regularities that we call the laws of nature, because God must do that, because that's God's nature of love, God, wait for it, can't, let me say it again, cannot prevent genuine evil from occurring because God's nature of love makes it the case that God cannot do so. What do you think of that? that so that is, that is bold. Um, <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm trying to kind of conceptually map that onto something that, that humans experience in terms of like, of our of our own love and our own um yeah. kind of similar impulses how would that like is there a is there an analogy there that would help yeah that's a great question i don't think humans can ever entirely control other humans mm-hmm. uh, we have bodies and so sometimes we can use our bodies to place constraints on others humans or non-humans mm-hmm. but that's not quite the same as totally controlling them Mm-hmm. I'll never forget when I was in Southern California doing my PhD work, my my wife would often go to work in the morning before I got out of bed, and I've got three daughters. And my uh, middle daughter was uh, in the midst of her terrible twos, and 
Mm-hmm. And if my wife left early in the morning without uh, kissing my daughter because my wife was assuming she was asleep, my two-year-old would jump out of bed, run down the hall, and throw a major temper tantrum at the front door. She couldn't open the door at that time, but she would just go nuts. And we would, you know, we would discipline her in a variety of ways. We would do all kinds of things to try to get her to stop, and we couldn't. Well, one morning, she did one of these temper tantrums after my wife walked out the door. And what I did, I'm not actually proud of as a parent, but uh, I need to tell you what I did (laughs) so you understand my illustration. I walked down the end of my hall to my front door. I picked up my two-year-old. I shook my finger in her face. I said, you will not throw a temper tantrum. I walked her back to her bed. I put her in her bed, and with one arm, I put it around her two little arms. With one leg, I put it on her her legs, which are kicking around. And with my other hand, I put it around her mouth where she was screaming. And in that particular moment, the thought went through my mind, even I can't totally control my two-year-old. God can't do that either. And I was thinking then that free will is so fundamental to who we are that even we who have bodies, I don't think God has a body, but even we who have bodies can't entirely control others. And I don't think God can either. Now, we don't have natures of love like God does, but um, I think that God's nature of love always gives freedom and agency to others, and God can't withdraw it, withhold it, or override it. Hmm. So how does that, um, cause I think this is the, um, where, you know, if, if, if you grew up reading the scriptures and so forth, where your mind goes to next is, is the question of how does this work with, um, the miraculous and how awesome. does this work with the stories of, you know, parting the Red Sea and so forth? Yeah, for your listeners, I need to say that uh, Mike and I didn't plan these questions beforehand, but <laughs> his questions are working perfectly into my book here. <laughs> awesome, awesome. <laughs> so uh, in my book, when I lay out what I call this essential kenosis view of open and relational theology, I say to myself, well, um, what exceptions might there be to this? Are there any? And uh, I spend an entire last chapter on the question of miracles. And I cannot find any place in the entire Bible that requires one to believe that God totally controls others. Every single miracle that I find has some aspect of nature involved. Now, some are even explicit, in which, especially Jesus' miracles, he talks about the faith of the believer and it doesn't necessarily even have to be the, the one who is healed. You know, the story of the, the uh, four friends who dropped their buddy through the roof of the, of the house. And what does Jesus say in response? It's your faith, talking to the friends, that has healed this man. Mm-hmm. And there are some times when Jesus can't do things because of a lack of faith. You know, he goes to his hometown and he can't do any miracles there. Um, And there are other instances in Scripture in which Jesus is unable to do things because creation, in one way or another, fails to cooperate. So, um, I don't find any biblical passage that requires one to believe, uh, to make sense of that passage, that God has coercive, or what we say in philosophy, the power to to act as a sufficient cause. now, some, I admit that some passages don't explicitly say that creation cooperates, 
but uh, it's easily plausible to believe that creation plays some part in every single miracle that uh, occurs. So what you're kind of pointing to, it sounds like, is that um, where these miracles happen in Scripture, there, for the most part, seems to be human beings who are seeking to cooperate with God or to become a kind of agent of God um, in, in the world or in creation. Yeah, I think it's most obvious with human beings. The vast majority of passages of Scripture which which God is dealing with humans, you have some kind of reference to humans cooperating. But I then want to speculate and go further that it's non-humans as well, that it's trees and rocks and water. Mm -hmm. Now, I admit that these nature miracles, as they're often called by biblical scholars, they're a little bit harder to uh, put into my scheme because, you know, although sometimes we do talk about the rocks crying out and the mountains doing things and the trees clapping their hands or whatever, uh, we don't usually think that inanimate objects have the kind of capacity for response that we think humans have. But I just, uh, I take my basic model and say, well, I don't see why it can't apply to uh, the natural world as well, especially given the things we know in quantum theory, chaos theory, uh, those kinds of leading um, um, uh, theories in physics today. There's, uh, plenty of opening for divine action, even at the micro level of existence. Mm. It, it reminds me of um, I think when I was when I was a young teenager, I went to a, uh, a church youth rally, and I think they they did some kind of um, de- demonstration uh, where they they uh, it was like tug of war, and uh-huh. um, they were they were trying to say something like you know. God is like the uh, the six hundred pound person on the other end of the rope, but um, it's all about the um, the uh, strength of the rope um, and and our our faith or our role in in things kind of play um, has a part to play in how strong the rope is. Like we ah, we I see whether we connect to um, the kind of vast power that's that's there um, yeah. or not has something to do with our openness to um, what God's will is and what God is looking for. In the Interesting. Hmm. Interesting analogy. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and, you know, youth ministers, they come up with different things. So that, Hey, that's, I was a youth minister for 10 years, so I know what that's all about. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so you kind of mentioned um, uh, the you know, the question of the kind of scientific theory and how does this um, conversation illuminate or connect with um, the scientific understanding of the world? Is there a way that this um, maybe gives us a better way of thinking about the connection between uh, faith and science? I, I really think it, it is. You know, obviously some scientists who believe in God are not open theists, so I don't want to give the impression that, you know, every scientist who believes in God thinks open theology is the greatest thing ever. Uh, but I think the general uh, impulses, general frameworks of contemporary science uh, fit well with open thought. Um, science basically presupposes some kind of a cause and effect and some sort of historical movement through time. Mm-hmm. So when we look at biology, look at psychology, even physics, uh, at least most of physics, 
there's this sort of implied notion of cause and effect and that something in the past can affect the future and that unless you're some sort of uh, person who believes in a block universe, Mm-hmm. You believe that the future is not yet determined in the sciences, and things can change. The general evolutionary picture, for instance, suggests that there's been change over time, and new things have arisen. Um, so, that's, again, I'm talking in generalities here, but the sciences in general have this notion that time is moving forward, that the future is not yet determined, and that cause and effect is chronological, one moment after another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. You get kind of both uh, both kinds of theologies in science, right? So you mentioned like the block universe model, where you know where everything is is kind of predetermined, and then you have kind of the open open time model, where cause and effect are are real and um, things things move forward. So it seems to me almost as if we're dealing with, you know, there's these two kinds of philosophies that show up both in theology and in science and kind of a split. Um, Yeah, I I would argue that most of the sciences fit best with an openness view, Mm -hmm. but given the power of general relativity and the mathematical way general relativity has been formulated, you don't need time moving forward to understand general relativity. And so those physicists who have, who think that general relativity give us the truth about the reality and it doesn't involve time are, you know, pretty fine with the notion that uh, if they believe in God, that God is timeless. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, I, I think they're, they're the minority, I think, in all of the sciences, although they're definitely uh, one group and I don't want to sort of discount them as being uh, non-existent. Yeah. But yeah, you do like the, even the operative assumption of how you do science kind of implies, <laughs> implies that time exactly. is real. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's pretty funny. Uh, in fact, that, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll find a scientist here or there. In fact, some of them are very famous who will talk about there being no purpose mm-hmm. in life. And, and they, they themselves believe it's their purpose to tell us there is no purpose. Mm -hmm. I always Mm -hmm. think that's just so odd. Like, why (laughs) don't you just take into account your own lived experience and then use that as you think about your work in science and then the bigger metaphysical questions about whether or not there can be purpose in life. Yeah. Um, Yeah, interesting. So um, with... um, does does that change how you think about uh so we talked about miracles like yeah and does, how miracles work in science because that's a sticking point for a lot of of people right yeah. um it, does this change the way we talk about that a little bit yeah that's a good question i think um there are two things we ought to avoid in this discussion of theology science and miracles one thing we ought to avoid is thinking that science in and of itself can ever give us the full truth about some occurrence. And when I say science, I mean science that doesn't have some sort of theological presuppositions, you know, sort of Mm -hmm. secular science, we'll say. Um, We need to avoid thinking that science, as science, can ever give us the full truth about any phenomenon. However, we also need to avoid the idea that theology, as theology, can ever give us the full truth about any particular phenomenon. 
Um, those of us who believe in God and those of us who think take science seriously should say that in every single case, every event, there always should be some, a full explanation has to appeal in some way to God and the natural world, to the creatures and the creator. Now, obviously, most scientists are going to sort of bracket out God and do their science as if there is no God and try to keep what they do purely in a naturalistic framework. And that's fine to a certain extent, so long as they don't come out and then say, well, what we have just discovered gives us the full truth about this thing, because then what they're doing implicitly is taking their bracketing God and they're moving God entirely out of it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, sometimes we find theologians uh, who want to talk about these supernatural events, and they use miraculous in the sense that God alone acted, and therefore science doesn't have anything to say. Uh, I think that's also uh, making a big mistake, because every time uh, someone does that, the scientist comes along and gives a partial explanation for the phenomenon, and then they... People think there's a competing, uh, there's a competition going on. When yeah. I think we best understand every event as having both a theological and a scientific explanation. Yeah, that um, that's a conversation that uh, I, I find myself in a lot. Is you know, is our use of the term su- supernatural? Um, it yeah. often, it often, yeah, is is used to say you know we, we're bracketing out nature. We're bracketing, you know, and we're saying yeah. this is something totally other. And what I what I see in the um, you know in the biblical story and in the Christian worldview is that um, you know God acts in the world, but that those acts are not unnatural, you know, and they're not yeah um, they're not uh, a complete. Um, abrogation of of the you know the systems of the world. Um, totally agree. Yeah. And so yeah, I, I think that's. Um, but but there's a there's a sort of philosophy that that um, has you know or a theology that's that's behind that to where um, a lot of people assume that anytime we talk about miracles, um, we are then saying. Um, it happened in this particular way where God stopped everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, even think about the, the language that's usually used. Mm-hmm. They'll talk about supernatural interventions, mm-hmm. which gives you the idea that God is outside the system, yeah. and God comes into the system, intervenes, and then usually people think acts unilaterally, totally controls, or acts as a sufficient cause. Right. Uh, so I think that whole language has just really gotten us screwed up. We should take out the idea that God ever intervenes and say God was always there all along. Yeah. But there are some instances in which God's purposes and will are better displayed than others, but God's never absent, so God never has to intervene. Yeah. And supernatural is not a health, helpful word either because it sounds like God is against nature. Yeah. But it's, we instead should talk about God working in and through the natural processes that God yeah. creates. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, when we get the Exodus account and we get the parting of the Red Sea, what the account yeah. tells us is that the a wind blew all, you know, all night and the waters, the waters were parted. And yeah. the, the story is not... You know, nothing natural happened. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. that God was working through these things that were happening to do this remarkable thing, in, you know, but through the processes of nature. I actually address that very miracle in my book. So you'll have to tell me what you think of it. I give about 
three or four explanations for that miracle huh. that don't require supernatural inter- intervention, but also don't uh, appeal to some sort of naturalistic account without mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about the Exodus movie that came out recently and that some, yeah. in some way around that movie, there was a lot of discussion of, you know, um, of if we talk about natural processes, are we then debunking God, you know, or something yeah. like that. And, and I think that's really unhelpful that we, that we need to be able to say, yeah, we can talk about natural processes, the, you know, as the ways in which God works in the world. And accomplishes yeah. his will. You know, John Wesley, one of my favorite theologians of all time, talked about this. And he said that the word natural man or natural person mm-hmm. is just a, an abstraction. There's no such thing as a natural person mm. because God is always, he likes the word prevenient grace. God is always gracing all creation. Mm-hmm. And so that God's presence makes none of anything that happens ever entirely natural. Yeah. And I think hmm. there's something to that. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, there's, it's, remi- it's reminding me of a couple of other discussions, um, that, uh, that we've been having, uh, Chris Bennett, who's a, a pastor from Florida. Um, he, uh, was recently talking about, um, the, the idea of, of artificial intelligence and he, and, um, and technology and so forth. And he's like, well, humans are God's technology. Like we, we are all the, the result of, of, um, this, this kind of grace and, um, and presence that's been poured out. Right. And, um, yeah, so we're, we're not, um, this, yeah, maybe natural being that God has to intervene to do something with. We're all yeah. brought to this process um, by by the presence of God already being there. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, so um, I, there's a term that um, I think Christians are pretty familiar with, which is the term providence. And in your kind of um, framework, what what does that mean to you? Oh, good question. Uh, you know, the word providence is actually not ever really clearly defined in Scripture. And when you read explanations of it amongst the great theologians in history, uh, their own particular slant on God's working in the world always sort of uh, shapes the way they define providence. So I try to keep providence very wide open, wide uh, open-ended, even though I admit I, you know, probably am influenced myself by my own views. But I just say that providence is God's action in the world to try to make it a better place or to bring something good about it or to promote the kingdom of God. Um, so I try not to put too much metaphysical claims in my view of providence and then, of course, I have lots of claims that I want to eventually talk about in my own essential kenosis view. Mm-hmm. But um, in general, providence is just God acting in the world in a good and loving way. So how do we, um, you know, if we're thinking about um, the will of God or, you know, f- finding a purpose in our lives or, or any of that kind of um, discussion, how do you think that we approach that? Yeah, 
I think I, I like this distinction between the general will and the specific will. I think God has a general will that God has that, that, that all creatures share. You know, God wills that we live a life of love, do good in the world, uh, obey to, or respond to God's call well, those kinds of things. And then I think God has specific wills moment by moment in our lives. God calls us to do particular things based upon what's possible in any particular moment. And uh, we can respond well or poorly to these options that God presents to us. And when we do the best that God offers, then we uh, fulfill God's will in that particular moment. And then another moment comes along, and there's another set of options. Some of them may be similar to the past, but some may be new. And God always calls us to do the loving best in any particular moment. So there's the general will that everyone has, and then there's a specific will that is moment by moment and particular to each one of us, given who we are, where we are in the world, our background, the environment, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so do you think that we, what, what should the process of discovering that look like? Is that a matter of prayer, uh, meditation, that sort of thing? Yeah, all those things. You know, the the community plays a role in helping us to figure out what it is, our own insight, our learning, our prayer. You know, um, there's this, the spiritual disciplines, the practices of the Christian life can be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a little bit of bad news to tell you, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anyone can know with absolute 100% certainty what God's specific will is in any particular moment. I think we can have uh, more or less confidence that some things are more likely to be God's will. But um, I think that it's unlikely any of us will get a crystal clear, unambiguous uh, no understanding of what God wants in any particular moment. And frankly, there may be a variety of things that are equally good uh, in any particular moment, and God would be pleased with us choosing any one of those variety. Now, that doesn't mean that you know anything is as good as anything else. There's probably some really poor options in every moment also. But I don't want people to get hung up on thinking there's just one thing that God wants you to do in every single moment. And if you miss that one thing and you know your calculations or your discernment was off a little bit, then you've sinned. I don't think that's the case either. Yeah. So in my, my own um, church background, which is the Church of Christ, there's a... Uh, there's a minister um, named Randy Harris, and I remember hearing him um, talk one time about praying which of the two um, Church of Christ schools he should take a job with. Um, And he was, um, he prayed and prayed and prayed, and he was, uh, he kept being really frustrated, you know, God, why aren't you telling me the answer to which of these two schools that I should go to. And, um, and eventually he felt like he got the answer. Um, you know, I don't care. It's up to you. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like that too. I I will sometimes use that very similar illustration uh, with my students. I'll say, you know, look, when you're deciding what college, what university, what graduate program to go to, there are probably a number of options that are equally good. That doesn't mean that every single option is equally good. You know, God doesn't want you to become a pimp or a prostitute. Mm-hmm. But, you know, amongst the options, there are probably some that are that are equally good. And uh, God is pleased if you choose any one of those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, um, 
now that I'm thinking about it, he also talked about he he was telling his students, um, well, they that a lot of his students had mission trips they would go on, and one of the mission trips, one of the groups, um, they would get in a van and they would start driving down the road, and at every stop sign they would pray and ask God which direction to go, and wow. um, and they would end up somewhere, of course. Um, you know, probably in the middle of nowhere, but wherever they ended up, they would, you know, they would spend that week of their mission trip or whatever. And they would, you know, they would come back with all these stories about all the people they met along the way and, um, all the encounters they had and all the great opportunities. And he said, you know, he told them, you know, maybe, um, this is just what happens when you actually kind of listen for God be uh, acting in the world around you. You know, maybe this isn't um, something you have to take, you know, a week out of your normal life to go do as this special project, but maybe these opportunities are always around you wherever you go. (laughs) And maybe we can just kind of tap into that by, by learning to maybe be a little more receptive to the opportunities in front of us. Well, I like that idea, but I also think there's a lot of value in planning ahead. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't help but think of y- your illustration and think about some pastors that I've I've listened to who, you know, don't believe in, in sermon preparation and, and then get up there. And, and it often happens that they, they'll say they pre- started to prepare, but then they feel like God wants them to go a different direction. Right. And time and time again, God has the same exact direction to go because it's the same sermon I've heard in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a uh, God honors preparation also. And there's yeah. probably some things that can't happen unless you actually prepare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Presumably God uh, gave us um, all of the kinds of mental skills and, uh, and so forth that we have for a reason, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So yeah, that's a, I guess that's a, a thing that I'm kind of wondering out of this is that, you know, a lot of times we think about, um, uh, faith or reliance on God or something like that as kind of where we need to, um, give up our own initiative or our own impulses and um, kind of like fall back, you know, kind of fall back on onto God. And I wonder about that. I think, I think there's sometimes some really good, good things in that, but I also think that um, surely God uh, wants us just as presumably we would want our, our own children to, you know, to grow stronger and to be able to kind of make choices over time and, and to take initiative and so forth. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. This brings, this makes, allows me to talk about a pet peeve of mine that maybe (laughs) your listeners will not like, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) Okay. I I don't like it when people talk about saying that God should take control of their life or take complete control Mm -hmm. of their life. I don't like the songs that talk about God taking our will. Mm-hmm. There's one particular chorus we sing in my church that says, take my will. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's the wrong way to think. I think what we should be saying is, God, I want to cooperate with you. I have a will. I have choices. I have faith. But I choose to cooperate with you using what I've been given, what you've given me. You don't have to take over and make me into a robot. Instead, you are asking for a partner. Mm -hmm. So many of the passages of Scripture that I read, God 
talks about being a friend or there's a marriage relationship or some kind of partnership. And I think that's a much healthier way to think of God's action in the world and our response than these phrases that talk about God being completely mm-hmm. in control. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's beautiful. Hmm. Well, well, yeah. Um, well, that, that's great. That's, uh, given me a lot to think about and I, uh, I think there's, um, there's a lot there and I, I love this idea of, of partnership because that does seem to be the thing that, that Jesus keeps talking to his disciples about, keeps kind of inviting them into, you know, I've, now I call yeah. you friends, you know? Um, yep. And that's at the heart of open theology, open mm-hmm. and relational thought that we mm-hmm. have a role to play in God's grand schemes to bring about the kingdom. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, joining me. Thanks for having this conversation. Where can people find out more about uh, about you and about um, your upcoming book? Where can people kind of tune in to when that hits the shelves? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, the Uncontrolling Love of God is supposed to be out, I think, the first part of December. Okay. It's published by InterVarsity Press Academic, but of course you can get it on Amazon.com, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I would really uh, want to invite your listeners to uh, come check out my blog, which is at thomasjord.com, T-H-O-M-A-S-J-A-Y-O-O-R-D. I've got lots of things there that I think would interest those who are interested in open theology, but I also blog on topics uh, on science and theology. Uh, I'm a theologian of love, so there's lots of stuff on love and altruism. And, and other topics. So I'd love for you to come and uh, check out some of the things that I've got there. Um, and just in general, that will probably be the best resource to get you in contact with other things that I'm up to. Cool. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Ord. Uh, thanks for joining us. And um, we'll definitely uh, kind of keep in touch and um, uh, look forward to reading uh, more about the parting of the Red Sea and some of these other questions in your book. I love it. Thanks so much, Micah. I've enjoyed talking to you. Yeah. I'll talk to you later.